in a palace. He is in the palace of an enemy king. And he's not there for diplomatic reasons or signing a peace treaty. In fact, this is written before David was ever king. And he certainly doesn't want anyone to know his identity. They would kill him in an instant if they did know. And so what does he do? Well, he's on all fours. He's making strange noises. He's scratching at the wall and he's dribbling everywhere. He's making everyone feel uncomfortable. He wants them to think that he is insane, out of his mind. And although some of the royal officials think that he looks familiar, his plan works and the king demands that he leaves. How on earth did David get himself into such a situation? Well, David was probably in his teen years when the great prophet Samuel had come to visit his family and he had been called from the field where he was looking after his father's sheep and Samuel told him that one day you are going to be the king of Israel. And there's a reason why some of the Philistine officials may have recognized him. David had, of course, with God's help, triumphantly battled the Philistine warrior Goliath. He had surprised everyone, not God, but everyone else, by slaying the bloodthirsty Philistine with a sling. But King Saul was jealous of young David's success. King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, was very jealous that everyone was chanting David's name. And so he did everything in order to kill him. And so David ran for his life. And that is how we eventually end up here in Gath of the Philistines, and he's acting out of his mind. And as David reflects on this moment, and this moment of deliverance by God. He uses it as an opportunity to give praise to God. And there are three things that we can learn from the psalm this morning. This psalm tells us about the honesty of the Bible. It tells us about the enjoyment that we can receive from God. And it also tells us about God's care for us. So firstly, let's talk about the honesty of the Bible. If you're making notes, my first point is this. Uh, The psalms are brutally yet beautifully honest. They're brutally, yet beautifully honest. The Bible is a very honest book. It's a book about God's goodness towards sinful people living in a sinful world. And the Psalms, which I found right in the middle of the Bible, are 150 songs uh, written by different people, mainly by David, but others too. And they're written by people in, in very different circumstances And for different reasons. Uh, What many of them, however, have in common is the fact that they are written in times of difficulty. And Psalm 34 is a prime example of this. As I mentioned before, it's written as David has just escaped from the Philistines. But it's not an isolated case for it to be uh, a, a song written for times of adversity. There are celebratory psalms, but for the most part, the psalms are songs for times of difficulty. If you look through this treasure trove, uh, you will find songs written in times of depression, regret, 
paranoia, worry, oppression, trouble, injustice, suffering, doubt, confusion, grief, and fear. And David, uh, who wrote most of them, um, wore his heart on his sleeve. He is always honest with God. He never hides his fears or his worries. And the good news for us this morning is that the Bible is not written with naivety. It's not sugar-coated. It is not for those with their heads in the clouds. It's for real people in real trouble. And David clearly was going through an ordeal when he wrote this. If you've got Psalm 34 in front of you, have a look at some of these verses. Uh, Look at verse 4. It talks about all my fears. In verse 6, David said, this poor man cried. In verse 17, it says, uh, the righteous cry for help. In verse 18, it says, uh, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. This is not someone who has had a cakewalk through life. David's life was complex. It was confusing and sometimes sad. And yet, if you look at verse 19, we read these words. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That is good news for us, is it not? We know our fair share of difficulties. In fact, I would say with some confidence that there is not one of you sat here this morning who isn't dealing with some sort of difficulty in your life right now. There's some ongoing issue which is causing you to worry. Christians have wonderful news, don't they? They've got a wonderful saviour, but they still face sleepless nights and confusion and grief and ill health and heartbreak and doubt and betrayal and boredom and debt. And yet the call of this psalm is not to to wallow in our difficulties. The answer is not to complain. Let's read those first three verses again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. They are a call to worship. He wants to praise the Lord. He is God in the bad times and the good. I've got a particular, um, not a hobby horse, but a a difficulty with people that say God is good when uh, something has gone well. Because God is good all of the time, isn't he? Even in our suffering and our difficulties, God is good. God is still worthy of our praise. Although it's harder to say it in those moments, we can never doubt God's goodness. And I love the fact that David is not content to worship alone. He calls others to do the same. He wants to point others to worshipping God. He wants to share this moment. In, uh, in 1 Samuel, you've got wonderful context for many of these psalms. And uh, 1 Samuel 22 tells us exactly what happened next in this story. After he leaves Gath, this is what happens. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. 
and everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. There was a a congregation, a group of people there who, yes, of course, wanted to support David, but more importantly, wanted to live for the Lord. It tells us that the people who joined David were those who were distressed, those who were in debt, those who were discontented. What attracted such people to the Lord? What made what David believed in so attractive? Which leads to my second point this morning. The Lord is more enjoyable than any other. There's a reason why the distressed, the discontented and the in debt gathered together. There's a reason why David could write these things after such an ordeal. You see, the Lord is not just a comforting father. He is not just our willing protector. But he is also to be enjoyed. He is delightful. And maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe you've never been told that before. But our main purpose as people is to enjoy God. And Christians can be guilty of being joyless and strict and miserable. And therefore, we often forget that there are many verses in the Bible telling us that we are supposed to be joyful men, women and children who enjoy God. Listen to these words if you don't believe me. Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Habakkuk 3, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there may be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Psalm 144, happy are the people who are in such a state, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And last one, Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and dwell and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. You see, in God we find joy. We find true and lasting happiness. That doesn't depend on circumstances here. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a a Christian, uh, a French mathematician in the 1700s. He said this, it's a wonderful quote, uh, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to find happiness. And yet, after such a great number of years, he says, no one without faith has reached the point to which everyone continually looks. All complain, whether princes or poor, noblemen or commoners, old or young, strong or weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, of all countries, all time, all ages and all conditions. The infinite abyss within can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only God himself. He's saying here that we're all after happiness. We are all after joy. Every decision 
that you have ever made, big or small, is in some way related to this grand goal of being happier. And yet we're looking in the wrong places. The only way of finding it is in God himself. So what must we do to find God? Well, we need to taste that God is good. We need to taste him. Uh, When you uh, tell someone about an amazing thing that you have eaten, uh, words can't do it justice, can they? Uh, You can talk about other things that it tastes like, you can describe the smells, you can list the ingredients, you can use lots of different words to try and capture what it was like. But nothing works as well as saying, have a taste of this. Try some of this, it's delicious. Taste it for yourself. And knowing God is not something that can only be read about. It's not something intellectual or academic He has to be experienced. We are to hunger for him. And we are to enjoy God with all of our senses. So let's ask ourselves this morning, does God make us happy? Does he make us joyful? Do we enjoy him? God is to be worshipped for many reasons. He is Lord. He is the wonderful creator. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is real. He is all these things and more, but we cannot and must not lose sight of the fact that God is to be enjoyed. If we are living our Christian lives mechanically and mindlessly and miserably in some sort of routine where we come to church uh, and we leave and uh, that's what we've always done, so we'll do it again and we pick up the Bible just so that it doesn't collect dust, and we uh, pray when we are in times of trouble, but but we only do it because we we know we ought to, Uh, then we once again this morning need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to delight in who God is. And there are times when we won't feel like this. And what I'm certainly saying is, um, is, is not that we should only do the things that we enjoy. That's not what I'm saying this morning. That would be a, a very dangerous way to navigate through life. There are good things which are difficult to enjoy, like school or um, some aspects of our work. Uh, there are certain mo- moments and certain times where those things did bring us joy. Um, there are certain things um, that are become difficult at times. Uh, Jobs and and marriages and family life, they're not always enjoyable all the time. And what I'm I'm saying is not that we we should quit those things or leave when something doesn't bring us joy anymore. That is how the world operates. Do something until it makes you happy and then go, leave, find something else. That is not what the Bible teaches. My aim this morning is to challenge us and to remind us that the Bible does clearly teach us that the Lord is supposed to be our delight. He's there to be enjoyed. What will be the effect if we come to God in this way, wanting to be, uh, to, wanting to enjoy him rather than just to come out of duty? Well, when we do this, we will become like who we worship. If we worship idols, 
then we will become like idols. This is what Psalm 115 says. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands, cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And yes, you might be thinking, I don't worship an idol made of metal or stone or wood today, so I can't possibly be like an idol. But we can still be conformed to the likeness of the things that we admire most. Uh, One preacher put it really helpfully when he put it like this. If we worship YouTubers and influencers and uh, the the TV presenters will become vain and self-centered. If we worship footballers will become obsessive and aggressive and overly competitive. If we worship actors and singers and celebrities, we'll become foul-mouthed and immoral and depressed. If we worship our jobs or our money, we'll become greedy and oppressive and materialistic. If we worship academia and the pursuit of degrees and titles, we'll become arrogant and condescending and conceited. These things are not bad things in and of themselves. There are footballers that I admire, actors that I love watching. Uh, I've spent money in this past week, believe it or not. Uh, We need money in order to live. I worked very hard for my degree, but they are things that are certainly not worthy of worship. Even our families, the things, uh, the people that we love the most. We love our families, but they cannot do what God does. Only God is worthy of worship. And we become more and more like the thing or the person we worship. And the good news is that same rule applies here. Look at verses 4 and 5. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those Those that look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. If we love Jesus, we will become like Jesus. The New Testament says that we will be conformed to his image. Our words, our thoughts, our actions will be more like him. When others spend time with us, they will be refreshed and they will be challenged. Because they will see something radically different about us. They will see some of that radiance that comes from God. So we become like what we worship. So this is what happens when we taste and see that the Lord is good. And thirdly and and finally this morning, I want us to remember not just that the Psalms are honest, not just that the Lord is more enjoyable than anyone else, but finally that the Lord cares more than any other. The Lord cares more than any other. The psalm opened with those words, didn't it? I will bless the Lord at all times. But imagine you've just found out that your best friend has been lying to you or mocking you behind your back or, or maybe you're dealing with long-term depression. Maybe uh, you're so frustrated because you don't think you'll ever be able to get married or start a family. Maybe a, a close relative has passed away. Maybe you don't know how you're going to be able to pay the bills this month. Maybe your body isn't working how it 
used to work. Can I still bless the Lord then? And yet the psalm opens with those words, I will bless the Lord at all times. It doesn't say most. It doesn't say sometimes. It says all. Well, how can we possibly do that? Well, it's because we have a God who truly cares for us. He is a God that is responsive to our troubles. He cares about our difficulties. David uses human senses and responses in order to show how God responds to his children's pain. Look at verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. When the righteous cry for help, this is uh, verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. And God not only hears, but he uh, sees our troubles. He acts upon them. And if God were to show empathy towards our difficulties, it would maybe uh, be a small morale boost. But ultimately, it wouldn't matter, would it? He would be distant and helpless. If he was just to see us and think, oh, poor them. But that's not the case, is it? Time and time again, it says that he delivers. David knew God's care because he delivered him from the Philistines. God delivers. He says it four times. Verse 4, verse 7, verse 17, verse 19. Again and again and again, the Lord delivers we are able to look back upon something that David was looking forward to. God saved David, but he also saves others too. And we see that great deliverance of God most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into our world. God himself, hearing our cries and experiencing all that we could experience, but without sinning. That is how we have been saved. What does the name Jesus mean? It means the Lord saves. It's an important name to know the meaning of. Some of our names have meanings today, don't they? Uh, My name means uh, Emperor of the Waves or Prince of the Sea. I can hardly swim, so it's a rubbish name to have. But Jesus' name means the Lord saves. And Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. His name points to what he set out to accomplish and did accomplish on our behalf. And sadly, we have lost sight of what it means for Jesus to save us. Because we don't think we're that bad. We sometimes think Jesus helps us rather than Jesus saves us. And maybe you've heard sermons comparing uh, the saving work of Jesus to some sort of Coast Guard who has helped us when we're in choppy waters. But we need a reality check. Uh, Dane Ortland, the uh, American preacher, says this. When Jesus saved us, we weren't drowning in need of being thrown a rubber ring. We were stone dead at the bottom of the ocean. He pulled us up 
breathed new life into us and set us on our feet. And now every breath we draw is owing to his full and utter deliverance of us in all our helplessness and death. Yes, Jesus saves. So that's what it means for us to be saved by Jesus. There's no hope outside of him. We are dead in the water without him. And how did he do it? Well, it wasn't from afar. You can't rescue someone from the bottom of an ocean from the shore, can you? You need to jump in. You need to rescue them. You need to resuscitate them uh, by going in. And that's what the Lord Jesus did by stepping into the messiness of our world and bearing our sins. And so Christ took on human flesh in order to be able to suffer on behalf of humanity. We've spoken of, of how David experienced grief and difficulty in his life. But Jesus is able to understand and save us from our grief because he experienced it all himself. He took our sin so that we might become righteous like he is. And the Holy Spirit is working within us now and transforming Christians from the inside out so that one day we will see the Lord Jesus Christ with our own eyes and we will be like him. The psalm ends with these Comforting words. The Lord, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Are you living in fear this morning? Is there some secret you are scared that others will find out? Do you sometimes feel you're not good enough? I do too. But there is a wonderful promise here at the end of the psalm, that none of those who put their trust in the Lord will ever be condemned. We can be at perfect peace. Why is that? Well, in a criminal trial, when a judge hands out the punishment, he can only hand it out once, can't he? He can only give it once. And because Christ was condemned on our behalf, we can be confident that the honest and righteous judge of all will not hand out the sentence again. The punishment is complete. The cup of wrath was poured out in full. And Jesus has stood in our place and taken it. And he's delivered us. And that's good news this morning. That's the best news you can hear this morning. It's the only news that you need for whatever troubles you are facing today.